That's Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. The text reads like this. The Apostle Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray earnestly now then that you would so move and so work as your word is unfolded to us that the blood of Christ would be our only hope in life and in death. And that, Lord, you would assure us tonight of just how saved we are, just how secure we are in the one who poured out his most precious blood unto death that we might be saved. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us in all these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In my study, there is a picture of a man standing at the top of a ladder. His arm is outstretched and he's lighting a lamp. Gloria bought that picture for me because she remembered an anecdote that I'd read to her from the life of my historical hero, whose name you all know, and I want to read that anecdote to you. One evening in the late autumn, Spurgeon was returning from a speaking engagement. The handsome cab in which he was riding made its way along the level ground at the base of London's steep Hernhill Ridge, which he needed to ascend. Presently, He saw a light before him, and as he came near the hill, he watched that light gradually go up the ascent, leaving a train of stars behind it. Eventually, the line of 
newborn lights reached from the foot of the hill to its summit. Spurgeon was witnessing the work of a lamplighter whom he could not see in the darkness. In those days, London streetlights burned gas but still had to be lit individually. And Spurgeon said, I did not see the lamplighter. I do not know his name, nor his age, nor his residence. But I saw the lights which he had kindled, and these remained when he himself had gone his way. As I rode along, I thought to myself, how earnestly do I wish that my life may be spent in lighting one soul after another with the sacred flame of eternal life. I would myself be as much as possible unseen while at my work and would vanish into eternal brilliance above when my work is done. And I really believe that that is the heartbeat of every healthy believer. He longs to be unseen and yet engaged in his master's work for his master's praise. And if you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, my hope and prayer is that God would use me to light the lamp of your soul. And that's why I've chosen to preach to us tonight from the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the church in Rome is easily the most detailed and the most deep summary of the gospel that we find in all of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul had never met the people to whom he was writing. He was thought to have been on his third missionary journey in the city of Corinth, AD 55, when he wrote it. And because he'd never met the believers to whom he was writing, he wanted to make sure that their gospel was his gospel. And so it should come as no surprise to us to learn that this letter has been used of God to lead countless souls to faith in Jesus Christ, including some of the most useful in all of church history. Someone said this, not Spurgeon, uh, no reasonable person would dispute that the, the, the book of Romans is one of the most powerful and influential books ever written. The epistle of Paul to the Romans has been the written force behind some of the most significant conversions of church history. St. Augustine, the most brilliant theologian of the early centuries, came to conviction of sin and salvation after reading some verses from the 13th chapter. Martin Luther recovered the doctrine of salvation by faith from his study of Romans 1.17 and went on to lead the Protestant Reformation. And while listening to the reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans, John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed in conversion and became the catalyst of the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. John Bunyan was so inspired as he studied the great themes of Romans in the Bedford jail that he wrote the immortal Pilgrim's Progress. But if you are here tonight and you are a believer, you want to hear the gospel too, don't you? Because the, the healthy believer, the sound Christian, finds his soul, finds her soul demanding over and over again, tell me the old, old story. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful rede redemption, God's remedy 
for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. And it's the blood-bought believer that can never hear enough of just how saved he is. Of just how secure he is. Of just how redeemed he is. Just how secure he is in Christ. And so whether for the first time or whether for the 100th time tonight, my hope and prayer is that I would be able to stand here with an arm outstretched and light the lamp of your soul. As we think about Paul's words in Romans 3, 23 and 25, where Paul says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And my best attempt at boiling those profound words down would simply be this, our God saves. Our God saves. And so I want us to see tonight, number one, our problem. And number two, our solution. Our problem, first of all, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now those words are more loaded than at first we might realize. Actually, Paul has spent two and a bit chapters unpacking exactly what he means when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, since the the recipients, uh, those on the receiving end of this letter were Gentiles, that is non-ethnic Jews living in a a pagan context with temples to the so-called gods and goddesses of, of Mars and Saturn and Castor and Pollux and Vesta, Venus, Roma, Apollo and Jupiter strewn throughout Rome, the great metropolis. Paul began by arguing that we Gentiles, we non-Jews are guilty before God even though we weren't on the receiving end of God's law God's standards contained within the Old Testament scriptures where without excuse he said for he said in chapter 1 what can be known about God is plain to them that is plain to us regardless of where we're living regardless of what what ethnic identity we have because God has shown it to them for God's invisible attributes namely his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But the Jews, Paul then moved on to say, are no better off because although they had received God's moral standards in the law, what did they do? They broke them. They broke the law. And therefore, 
all of their religious observance, all of their outward religious acts of piety were ultimately powerless in their lives to save them. Paul asked the Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh in chapter 2, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And therefore, Paul argues, both Jews and Gentiles have the same problem in common. And that is their sin in the face of a holy, holy, holy God. And notice that the problem of sin is vertical before it is horizontal. That is, it is an offense before God before it is a problem in the world and among our peers. When I'm off on Sunday mornings, sometimes I'll just slip into the back of a, of a church and just see what's going on uh, in, in our area. And the last time uh, I, I did that, I can honestly tell you all, that I heard more about climate change than I heard about our sin before a holy God. Any thought, any notion whatsoever about sin was boiled down to my misdeeds against you, my carbon footprint, my carbon emissions. But before sin is about what we do to one another, it is a spitting in the face of God. It is a sitting on the lap of God only to smack him in the face. What is sin? One preacher asks. The glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not relied upon. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. It is to miss the mark of God's excellency and fall short of his glory. And why is that such a problem? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And God the judge is altogether just. And he will render to every man and to every woman according to what they have done in the body. Now Paul is about to deliver the good news. Aren't we all glad about that? He's about to deliver the best news in all the world. But the reason Paul spends two and a bit chapters unfolding the bad news, and the reason for this short and succinct summary of the bad news here in Romans chapter 3 is because until the bad news sounds like bad news to us, the good news won't sound like good news to us at all. No sane person goes to A&E unless there's been an accident or an emergency. 
No healthy person drinks medicine unless he or she is unwell. And you have to know what the problem is before you reach for a solution. And therefore, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, the first thing you have got to do is agree with God in his assessment of you. And is an assessment of your soul that yes, in fact, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are therefore facing his just and eternal judgment. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' longest, longest parable really unfolds this for us. It's the one about the, the father with those two sons. And there's that one son who approaches his dad and he says to his dad, give me the inheritance that is coming to me. Translation, dad, hurry up and die or give me my inheritance now. And so he does. And this younger brother takes his inheritance. He goes to that far off country and he begins to squander his possessions in reckless living. He runs out of money. The famine comes. The only job he can get is feeding pigs until he himself has to eat the food that he is feeding to the pigs. And it's in that moment that he comes to his senses and he comes back home. And what does he say to his father? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you see that? The most natural thing for him to do was to accept reality and was to voice it. And Jesus also said two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And friends, we must do the same. To disagree with God's assessment of our lives is to, go, is to call God a liar. And my heartfelt plea to you tonight is that you would not call God a liar, but that you would admit that his assessment of you is 100% true and accurate. That yes, in fact, you have, we have, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's just a very, very brief overview of our problem. But I want us to think second of all about God's solution. Number one, our problem. Number two, God's solution. Verse 23 to 25, let's read them all uh, together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul writes, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is, I believe, the most profound and the most dense sentence that has ever been written. There is a five-part sermon series in there somewhere. God's solution, Paul says, for hell-bound, guilty sinners is God's work of justification. That is, 
God's declaration of not guilty, but righteous, spoken over us as the gavel goes down in heaven's courtroom. And upon what basis could God possibly do that? Well, answer the death of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us here that God put Christ forward as a propitiation. That means as a wrath bearer, as an anger absorber, as a judgment taker for us. It is what we call the great exchange that Jesus took into himself all of our sin and all of God's just judgment against our sin and gave to us all of his righteousness and all of the favor that Jesus deserves. So that today, if you will agree with God's assessment of your life and believe that Jesus Christ loved you and gave himself for you on the cross, you will be both free from the slavery of sin and declared not guilty, but righteous before God the judge. And what we have here in Romans chapter 3 really is the great answer, the great solution to the enigma that we come across in the in the Old Testament. I wonder if this passage has ever puzzled you before. You remember when Moses pleaded with God, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then later on we read, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And you stand back and you ask yourself, well, how can those two things be true at the same time? Lord, how can you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet by no means clear the guilty. What else does it mean other than to clear the guilty, but to forgive transgression, iniquity, and sin? And it's at the cross, isn't it, that the scales fall from our eyes. Because there at the cross we see that no, God did not sweep our sin under the rug of the universe and pretend they don't exist. But instead, he gave them their due. He poured out the full weight of his holy and just wrath against them. Why? So that sinners could have their transgression, iniquity, and sin forgiven. And here is righteousness and mercy, wrath and grace embracing all in the same place. Christianity explored this last Thursday we came to the great session about the cross and you've heard me give this one before but Rico Tice gave this great illustration uh, when he said right at the heart of 
of London is the Old Bailey, the home of British justice. At the top is the golden statue of the Lady Justice. She holds the scale of justice in one hand and the sword of judgment in the other. And the message is clear. If we are found to be guilty, the sword of judgment must fall. But just across the London skyline from the Old Bailey on top of St. Paul's Cathedral is another golden symbol. It's a cross. And it's a powerful reminder that although the sword of God's judgment must fall, it fell on Jesus Christ. And that was, and that is, God's great solution for the problem of our sin. The question now is, what will you do with it? And the reason that's the question is because Paul tells us what to do with it at the end of our passage. He says, it is to be received by faith. It's a gift, not to be earned, not to be merited, simply to be received freely. And if you will do that, Paul says, you will be saved. Sins forgiven, righteousness given, all of God's promises for you, streets of gold and endless joy yours because God put forward his son to be the wrath bearer for our sins. You will only have hell to lose and heaven to gain, filthy rags to lose and robes of righteousness to gain. But if you will not receive it by faith, then the wrath that Jesus experienced on the cross will be yours to face in hell forever. Someone said, in hell there is no hope. The souls there have not even the hope of dying, the hope of being annihilated. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell there is written forever. In the fires there blaze out the words forever. Up above their heads they read forever. Their eyes are gold and their hearts are pained with the thought that it is forever. Oh, if I could tell you that hell would one day be burned out and that those who were lost might be saved, there would be a jubilee in hell at the very thought of it, but it cannot be. It is forever. They are cast into utter darkness. But the alternative, friend, is with open hands to simply receive this gift by faith and have this gospel light the lamp of your soul unto eternal life because our God saves. And every blood-bought believer in this room is a living, breathing, walking, talking testimony to that fact. Our God saves. We have a problem. God has given us the solution and it is to be received by faith and by faith alone. Well, may God claim you as his own as you claim this great redemption as your own. I want to pray for you and then we'll stand to our feet and sing before we come around the Lord's table. Father, we thank you so much that you have opened the hearts of many here to receive this gospel by faith and by faith alone. And we thank you, Lord, that we can receive it with empty hands, not needing to have earned or merited or come to deserve this gift. It is a gift from beginning to end. And Lord, we really do pray that for those gathered here today who are outside of all of these glorious redemptive blessings, 
Lord, we pray that simply by faith they would come onto the inside of them and they would taste and see for themselves that you, the Lord, is good, are good because you have given to us your Son to be our Savior. And Lord, how we plead and beg of you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.